This year, I am focused on saving and investing, but I still want to do things like travel. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side-by-side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending, which means you could end up with a free flight or maybe a better hotel room. So what could future you do with smarter financial decisions? Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. We're so excited to introduce you to Great Jones. Great Jones makes high-quality, thoughtfully designed cookware that's so stunning, you won't want to put it away. They have everything from Dutch ovens to ceramic dishes to non-stick sheet pans. They've got everything you want. I have the Saucy, which is a terrific saucepan. It has curved sides. It has a pouring spout. It has a lid. And it looks so elegant. It's really a pleasure just to look at it on the counter, even before we're using it. Yes, I love all the colors. Yeah. They make stunning gifts that are actually useful. Weddings, housewarming parties, birthdays. It's the perfect gift for the foodie in your life. So upgrade your kitchen and replace those old rusted hand-me-downs with bold, beautiful, long-lasting pieces from Great Jones. Get started today at greatjones.com and get an extra 15% off your first order with promo code HAPPIER. That's greatjones.com, promo code HAPPIER. Hello and welcome to Happier, a podcast about how to be happier. This week is our discussion for the Happier Podcast Book Club. So we'll be talking to Michelle Zauner about her thought-provoking, beautiful memoir, Crying in H-Mart. I'm Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness, good habits, and human nature. I am in my home office, which is a little bit noisy today here in New York City. And joining me today from Puerto Rico is my sister, Elizabeth Kraft. That's me, Elizabeth Kraft, a TV writer and producer, usually living in L.A., but right now in Puerto Rico, shooting Fantasy Island. And I am very excited to talk about this excellent book. Yes. Last year, we launched our Happier Podcast Book Club, and today's conversation is about the brilliant memoir, Crying in H-Mart, by Michelle Zauner. Michelle Zauner is known as a singer and guitarist who creates dreamy indie pop under the name Japanese Breakfast, with releases like Psychopomp, Soft Sounds from Another Planet, and just this year, Jubilee. And now she's written a best-selling memoir that has generated a tremendous amount of buzz ever since she published an excerpt in The New Yorker. The official description is, In this exquisite story of family, food, grief, and endurance, Michelle Zauner proves herself far more than a dazzling singer, songwriter, and guitarist. With humor and heart, she tells of growing up one of the few Asian-American kids at her school in Eugene, Oregon, of struggling with her mother's particular high expectations of her, of a painful adolescence, of treasured months spent in her grandmother's tiny apartment in Seoul, where she and her mother would bond late at night over heaping plates of food. As she grew up moving to the East Coast for college, finding work in the restaurant industry and performing gigs with her fledgling band and meeting the man who would become her husband, her Koreanness began to feel ever more distant, even as she found the life she wanted to live. 
It was her mother's diagnosis of terminal cancer when Michelle was 25 that forced a reckoning with her identity and brought her to reclaim the gifts of taste, language, and history her mother had given her. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, Michelle. Hello. We're so excited to talk to you about Crying in H Mart. Now, most of the people listening will have read it because this is our book club episode. But in case anyone hasn't, can you explain what Crying in H Mart means? H Mart is a Korean grocery chain and where I found myself often after my mother passed away from cancer in 2014. And I'm mixed race. I'm half Korean, half Caucasian. My mother was Korean. And I found that cooking Korean dishes and learning how to make Korean food helps me grieve her loss and kind of remember her the way that I wanted to. And so in order to do that, I was going to H Mart often and crying as I bought those ingredients. Well, I think the cover is so brilliant. I have to say, I had looked at it many times and just appreciated it just the way it looked until I saw that it made an H. Um, so uh, I got a, a particular sense of satisfaction <laughs> from that once, once I actually noticed it. Yes, there's chopsticks holding noodles that form an yeah. H for H Mart. Yes, for H Mart. Really beautiful. So, Michelle, we got a lot of questions and observations from listeners about things that they wanted to ask you about. And this came from Samantha. She wrote, I just finished this book and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it or talking about it. I'm half Korean and half white and have never felt seen until this book. It made me cherish my mom so much, but also reflect on the complicated relationship I've had with her. Something that has been hard to accept as my own because of feeling never quite Korean enough and never being quite American enough either. I'm sure she's already heard from others how important her words and her story have been to people like me, but I wanted to reiterate it and shout it from the rooftops. Questions I had when reading were, and I have to say there's, mm. this is one easy question and one more um, tr- kind of transcendent question. One is, what is your favorite Korean dish your mom made for you? I think that the most memorable dish is her kalbi, which is a Korean barbecue short rib. But every time mm-hmm. I came home from college twice a year, she would always prepare kalbi, fresh rice, red leaf lettuce, samjang, uh, and dongchimi, which is this white radish kimchi in brine. It's like kind of like a Korean gazpacho, and you mix mm-hmm. in sesame oil, sesame seeds, and red pepper flakes. And that sort of set was always what I came home to when oh. I'd been, you know, eating college cafeteria food for (laughs) weeks and weeks. And uh, that's always the sort of main dish that I associate with her. Michelle, you said that you realize now that food is how she expressed her love, like knowing what you wanted and having it ready for you. Did you realize that when you were growing up or was that not until she was sick that you clued into that? I think that was something I was slowly beginning to realize I think a lot of people go through this experience where you sort of begin to return to Mm -hmm. your parents Mm -hmm. and understand them in a deeper way in your early 20s. And I think that that was what was so heartbreaking about my experience was that she died just when things were starting to be really great between us. And Mm -hmm. we were beginning to return to each other as peers in a way. We could confide in each other in this sort of new way. And um, I think I was in the process of beginning to realize, you know, I have, I'm first generation and my mom is an immigrant parent and the way that she loves me is very different from 
the way that I see my peers, my, you know, white peers being loved by their families. And uh, that was a, something that I came to realize much deeper in the process of writing this book. Mm. Well, Samantha's second question was, what do you think your mother would say if she listened to your music today? Would she be harsh or more accepting because of your success? Mm. I mean, I think she would definitely be more accepting because of my success. <laughs> I would so love to see her reaction to the response uh, to what's happening because, you know, it didn't, things didn't look good for me for a long time. And I think that she was always just kind of trying to protect me from failure and financial reality. And for her to see what has happened, I think would be really astounding for her. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, she is also the most brutally honest person. And I think she would say the same kind of thing that she used to say about my music, which was such a mom response. It, she would always say, what are you saying? I can't understand what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well when you touch funny. on this, on this issue of imagining what your mother's response would be right near the end of the book. And it's a very beautiful passage. Um, so would you read it? It's at the bottom of um, 232 to 233 about a show that you did. When we got on stage, I took a moment to take in the room. Even at the height of my ambitions, I had never imagined I'd be able to play a concert in my mother's native country, in the city where I was born. I wish that my mother could see me, could be proud of the woman I'd become and the career I'd built, the realization of something she worried for so long would never happen. Conscious that the success we experienced revolved around her death, that the songs I sang memorialized her, I wish more than anything, and through all contradiction, that she could be there. I took a breath. Annyeonghaseyo, I shouted into the mic, and we launched into our set. I hadn't believed in a god since I was about 10 and still envisioned Mr. Rogers when I prayed, but the years that followed my mother's passing were suspiciously charmed. I had been playing in bands since I was 16, dreamt of succeeding as an artist practically my whole life, and as an American I felt entitled to it in spite of my mother's aggrieved forewarnings. I had fought for that dream thanklessly for eight long years, and only after she died did things, as if magically, begin to happen. If there was a God, it seemed my mother must have had her foot on his neck, demanding good things come my way. That if we had to be ripped apart right at our turning point, just when things were really starting to get good, the least God could do was make a few of her daughter's pipe dreams come true. It's such mm. a beautiful passage. And it, it must, you write many times about how hard it was that she missed out on this stage. But it's wonderful to think that somehow she played a role yes. in it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's hard not to feel that way. Well, and I loved him, Michelle, in the book, you um, quote your mom saying, you know what I realized? I've just never met someone like you. And it almost seemed like once she realized, oh, you're just different from anyone I know, you were able to sort of communicate better. Yeah, I think so. I think that so much of this book is about not understanding that things that I identified as being idiosyncratically cruel parts of my mom's personality <laughs> were actually so rooted in a difference in culture and a generational difference. 
And yeah, I mean, I think that that was a big part of it as, as we got to the point where we finally were able to accept that we were just very different from one another, but ultimately loved each other very deeply. Well, there was that one section where you, you thought it was sort of your mother saying, wait, save your tears until your mother dies. She was sort of a refrain she had. But you didn't realize that this was something that others said, that she had heard this herself. Right. You thought this was just her sentiment, but it turns yeah. out it was sort of more of a saying or at least a family saying. Yeah, I mean, it's really funny because I've learned a lot from my aunt, my last remaining aunt, who's her older sister, that, you know, she was really surprised with the way that she raised me because we were so similar. I had heard as from a young age that my mom was kind of a rebel and a real tomboy. And I think that you just, you know, that's just part of life. The circle of life is that you you learn how to love someone the way that you were loved by your parents, I think. And um, that was how her mother loved her. And the same thing that she said to her growing up that I'm sure she hated. And in turn, I'm sure that's something that I will say to my kid eventually, uh, you know, because I've gone through this experience. And I and, you know, a lot of what my mom said was right, you know. Well, and you write in the book that she used to say to you, save 10% of yourself. And she would say, even from daddy, I save. And I thought that was so interesting. And the fact that later you realized she saved 10%, different 10% from different people, from you, from your father, from her siblings. Yeah, I mean, I think to a certain extent that we all keep things from other people and and different people know different parts of ourselves but it was certainly really great advice to get from a young age because it you know really prepared me for life uh to protect yourself and and not trust anyone completely and always have something to sort of fall back on well it's it's interesting because i was just rereading mrs dalloway by virginia wolf and she wrote this passage um in, in from the perspective of clarissa dalloway and it so reminded me of what you'd written in your memoir she writes and there is a dignity in people a solitude even between husband and wife a gulf and that one must respect thought clarissa watching him open the door for one would not part with it oneself or take it mm. against his will from one's husband without losing one's independence one's self-respect something, after all, priceless. So it's this idea that we need to hold something back to have that independence. Absolutely. I think that my mom always really promoted independence in a way. I mean, even mm. when I was growing up, like she had such an interest in self-care and uh, the way that she presented herself to the world, but it was never rooted in it was never, it was always for herself. Mm. She always taught me from a very early age that beauty and self-care should be things that you do for yourself and not for anyone else. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Coming up, more with author Michelle Zauner. But first, this break. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. And, you know, Elizabeth, I now work with a team and hiring the right people is so important. It's maybe the most important thing. And LinkedIn makes the process of identifying and hiring people easy and intuitive. I know that when I've been hiring for my team, it's hard to find quality candidates to interview. And LinkedIn isn't just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else 
even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash Gretchen. That's linkedin.com slash Gretchen to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and luckily I found Quince. Elizabeth, I got the Flow Knit Wide Leg Pant. It's very light. It's perfect for the summer. It packs very easily. I recently went on a trip with my family, and I took it with me, and they were just the thing to wear on a really hot day where I wanted to be covered up, but I wanted something that looked great and also was very comfortable. And the best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash Gretchen for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Gretchen to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash Gretchen. Do you think you know her better now, Michelle, that you've written the book than you did when she was alive? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I I really think that I was able to get a better understanding of all the major players in this book, of myself, of my mother, my father, this woman, Kay, who came to live with us. I think that that's a really beautiful thing that writing a memoir can do is that you have to be fair as much as possible to to everyone. And if you're going to throw anyone under the bus... You have to make sure to do it to yourself just as as much as you do to anyone else. And in order to get Mm. full perspective and multidimensional characters, you have to explore all parts of a person's backstory and um, what makes them make the decisions and actions that they they make. And I think that that's a really wonderful thing about writing this book was I, I was able to understand where people were coming from in such a deeper way and forgive myself and other people for things that I had been upset about for a really long time. Our listener, Megan, asked a question. She wrote, I'm so curious about what her father thought of the memoir, as I've read a few interviews that they've since lost touch. And I think there she's referring to um, an essay that you wrote in Harper's Bazaar, and I'll post a link to that. And before you answer, I'll just say, in the memoir, you kind of make a prediction, or or you're, you're, you're already thinking about this in the memoir itself. You write, There was a dangerous and unspoken prospect looming that without my mother to bond us, my father and I would drift apart. I was not essential to him in the way I knew I was to my mother, and I could see that in the aftermath, there would be a struggle to coexist, that there was a good chance we would come unmoored, that our family would dissolve entirely. Yeah, I mean, my father is a really interesting character. He's lived a really difficult life and was always he was always a provider for our family. I wasn't as as close to him growing up as I was to my mother who was a homemaker and had all of this time to spend with me. Yeah, I mean he took my mother's death and her illness very hard and I think that that's pretty common when when you're going through the caretaking process is that mm-hmm. one person feels this need to really take a lot of the responsibility and the other person is a 
bit more able to fall apart or just can't quite mm -hmm. handle it. And mm -hmm. I think that here was a man whose life was falling apart for, you know, the second or third time in his life, and he had no idea how to cope with it. And yeah, I was really angry at him for that as a, as a father and that he wasn't able to give me the support that I felt like I offered him during that time. But in writing this book, you know, it made me really understand his perspective a bit more. We don't speak, we haven't spoken really or seen each other in the last couple of years. And part of that is because he lives abroad and the pandemic has made it even more difficult mm. to try mm -hmm. to find mm -hmm. some common ground. But I'm not sure if it will be a forever thing. I, I actually didn't find out that he had read the book. I had sent it to him, but he had never messaged me about reading it until the New York Times article came out. And I found out that he had read it there. And I recently did ask him what he thought of the book. And his major issue was that I had I had grown up thinking that he sold used cars. <laughs> but he was very upset and wanted me to know that he sold new cars in Germany. Uh -huh. And I was like, of all the things that you right. could have maybe <laughs> been uh, taken issue with in of that I have revealed in the book, that was what really bothered him. That was the only thing that he brought up. So yeah, my father sold new cars in Germany. He wants to be made clear. But you know, he's a real open book and he'd be the first to tell you all of the things that I included in the book. You know, he knows that he kind of fell off during her illness and he accepts that. And he, the, the sort of darker parts of the book are things that he, he knows already. And I think he didn't really take issue. It was more of this kind of like, you know, that was a really crucial part of his life was like, he really turned around, he's an ex-felon, he's an abused child. And that was where he found his footing. That's where he turned his life around. And so I think that to have that not being take feel like that wasn't taken seriously, I think was really upsetting for him. <laughs> but it seemed to me that you did take it seriously. It felt like it was like very fair to him or, or within within the memoir, you really were providing his perspective and like where he was coming from with all this. I mean, if it has to do with you, maybe it doesn't feel fair, but it felt as a reader, it felt like you as the writer were trying to paint a portrait of him that was respectful of everything that he'd gone through and, and kind of his perspective on what every everyone was struggling with. So it didn't feel like it was like mm. vengeful or, or, you know, kind of taking advantage of the fact that you're the one who's, <laughs> who's writing the record, yeah. which sometimes in memoirs, you definitely get the sense that you're hearing one person's point of view. This felt like a really, uh, like a very serious attempt to under, to grapple with the complexity of the situation from all the different actors. Well, thank you. That means a lot to me because it was something that was really important to me and happened very much in the revision process. I think that when mm -hmm. I turned in my first draft, it definitely read that way where it was very, you know, slanted in my favor, of course, because it's my perspective, it's my mm -hmm. memoir, but it's certainly uninteresting and not really <laughs> a mature or fair thing to <laughs> be biased in that way or not not present, you know, if you're going to throw someone under the bus, you have to throw yourself under the bus, too. So it was, it's very difficult to find things that are not flattering that you do as a protagonist. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. In a moment, more about crying in H-Mart. But first, this break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
We all carry around different stressors, big and small, and when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Gretchen, when I started my career, therapy really helped me work through all of my stresses so that I was able to concentrate at work and do a good job. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Gretchen Rubin today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Gretchen Rubin. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth... I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. One of the things I uh, love about the book, Michelle, is how it's really kind of in medias race. It's like the story is still unfolding. It is still raw for you. You know, if you wrote uh, write another memoir in 10 Mm, years, it could be again, evolve and change. And I I found that immediacy of it um, just so compelling. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, a lot, especially the later chapters, a lot of it was still kind of happening in real mm-hmm. time. You know, I was going to Korea and writing a lot of this book and the last chapter was a later edition that a lot of those sort of moments kind of happens in real time. Because initially I... I didn't know if I was going to include anything about music or my aunt and I's relationship. Our bond really deepened uh, over the last few years. And so it really found its place in the book kind of in real time. And here is another question from a listener. Kelly writes, how did writing the book and the previous essays support her creativity as a singer, songwriter, performer? And how did her music enable her voice in nonfiction writing? Interesting. I think that having the experience of writing albums definitely made me feel 
more confident about taking on a larger creative project and knowing that that was something that I had done before and could potentially do again. I maybe was a little too confident at first thinking that those those things were so similar because, you know, writing an album is maybe 1,500 words and writing a book is, is closer to 80,000. But yeah, I think that it was really gratifying in this way that I never anticipated. You know, fans of Japanese Breakfast, my band, will notice that there are some borrowed lines in the book and there's a lot of borrowed content. And I think, you know, with music you're really painting a very impressionistic picture that can be taken in many different ways. Whereas with a book, you have to really guide the reader to feel and understand and have this kind of knowledge that you need them to know. You have to guide them a bit more. Whereas I think a listener can have more sort of varying interpretations of your work. But yeah, it was just great to have the room to explore a scene. You know, there's a Japanese breakfast song called Rugged Country where I I sing, it's a heavy hand where I wear your death as a wedding ring. And if you don't know the context of that story, that could mean quite a few things. But in the book, I was able to actually explain there is a line about having a heavy hand and writing out that this heavy hand was not only a physical feeling of just wearing a ring for the first time, but also it represented so much in that moment. Oh, let's listen to a little bit of Rugged Country. Beautiful. I love listening to that connection. Yeah, it's it's cool to see the echo in the book. Yeah, there's a lot of instances in this book where I was able to just really show a scene. And like I said before, I think the biggest difference is that you get to really enter into different characters' perspectives and have uh, walk away with a deeper understanding of different people in this way that you don't get to do in music quite as often. Now, Michelle, um, you took the Four Tendencies quiz. So please tell us, what is your tendency? Hmm. I was an upholder. I am an upholder. Mm, that's what Gretchen is. That's what I am. And did that ring true for you that you can meet inner expectations and, and you're also interested in meeting outer expectations? It did, yes. I'm very much that type of person. Mm. I don't know if I've always been that. Mm. I guess in some ways, like, I, it is really important for me, especially in the last seven years or six or seven years, that, that I keep commitments to myself. I think it's what keeps me grounded. Mm-hmm. And we always like to ask our guests for a try this at home suggestion, something manageable and practical that people can do starting tomorrow to make themselves happier. Do you have anything that you would suggest for uh, <laughs> listeners? This isn't really something that I do, but my husband does a lot of things that make my life really enjoyable that I would recommend other people oh. trying. <laughs> but it's very boring, and oh. I don't know if it actually suits the podcast. But it's okay. a very small we love boring. thing. Okay, when he when we get a carton of eggs, he'll rip the top off so you can always see <laughs> how many eggs that you have and you can grab them very <laughs> easily. It's just one of those things that like I love that he does and makes my life really enjoyable and it's definitely the simplest thing that you can try on in your life. And why don't we all do that? I never thought <laughs> of doing that and it is such a hassle to open egg cartons. Well, and then if you run out, 
you need three eggs and you assume, oh, we have a whole carton of eggs, but then there's only one little lonely egg in there. <laughs> I eat so many eggs. That's me a too. really good tip for me. And I good. literally never occurred to me. Yes. Well, thank you, Peter, for that. Thank yes. you, Peter. Peter gets a gold star. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle, it's been so great to talk to you. Yes, Michelle, we loved the book and it was such a pleasure to get to talk to you about it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Michelle. We would still love to hear your impressions and reflections on this terrific memoir, Crying in H Mart. Reach us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Drop us an email at podcast at GretchenRubin.com. As always, go to the show notes at happiercast.com slash 334 for everything related to this episode. And remember, hashtag read 21 in 21. It is so fun. And remember that whenever it is and wherever you are, there's always a book waiting for you. Yes. The resources for this week. Since we started the Happier Podcast more than six years ago, we have seen that people really want to talk about the Four Tendencies framework. More than three million people have taken my Four Tendencies quiz to find out if they're upholders, questioners, obligers, or rebels. There are a lot of resources on my site, um, which features a brand new video series. I sit down with award-winning journalist Ron Lieber, world-renowned chef Carla Hall, personal finance expert Ramit Sethi, and podcaster Jordan Harbinger to talk about the Four Tendencies Framework. Head to GretchenRubin.com slash Four Tendencies to watch these fascinating conversations and learn how an obliger, a questioner, an upholder, and a rebel each have harnessed their tendency to find success in their own way. What we're reading. Elizabeth, what are you reading? I am listening to Do You Mind If I Cancel by Gary Janetti. And I am reading Conversations with James Baldwin, a collection edited by Fred Stanley and Darnell Pratt. And that's it for this episode of Happier. We hope you enjoyed the book club. If you have any further insights or observations about Crying in H Mart, please let us know. And if you have suggestions for the book you would like us to read next in the Happier Podcast book club, we would love to hear your suggestions. Thank you to Michelle Zauner. It was so great to get to talk to her about Crying in H Mart. Thanks to our executive producer, Chuck Reed, and everyone at Cadence 13. Get in touch. Gretchen's on Twitter, at Gretchen Rubin, and I'm at Elizabeth Craft. Our email address is podcast at GretchenRubin.com. And if you like the show, it is very helpful to us if you take time to rate and review us, especially if you give us those five gold stars. We love a gold star. Until next week, I'm Elizabeth Craft, And I'm Gretchen Rubin. Thanks for joining us. Onward and Upward. Gretch, I'm back in Puerto Rico, and would you believe I'm in the same hotel room where I spent eight weeks? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Is that kind of nice to come home, or do you feel like it's the Groundhog Day that, from which you cannot awake? <laughs> sort of both, but it does have a great view, so I'm not complaining. But my question is, did you get the mini fridge this time? I have one mini fridge. I do not have two, and I'm back to the internal debate. Is I'm only going to be here 17 days. Do I really need a second fridge? Probably so. From the Onward Project.